Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, National wants to scrap the petrol excise tax and get everyone paying road user charges instead. And we think there's a much fairer approach to right. charging for road use because it's based on the number of kilometres you travel rather than the number of litres of fuel that you use. We'll have the first of our party leader interviews heading into October's election and we're in the Tukituki electorate where two locals who once were colleagues are now rival candidates. The best focus I can do is focus on the job I'm working on now and that's what I do every day. Not your opponent? Absolutely not. But we begin this morning with transport. On Thursday, the government released its draft policy statement on land transport, outlining more than $20 billion in spending over the next parliamentary term and a 12 cent per litre increase in petrol taxes. If it's elected to government, National is also planning billions of dollars on new roads. I asked transport spokesperson Simeon Brown for his reaction to the government's plans. Well, look, I think this is a government which... Um, for six years has railed against building any roads in New Zealand uh, and now they've decided it's time to build some roads. Uh, you just cannot believe this government when it comes to transport. They've had six wasted years. They haven't started and completed one major new infrastructure project in New Zealand. Uh, and now what they've released is just simply a pipe dream trying to bind New Zealanders votes in a cynical and desperate attempt um, using the government policy statement on transport, Isn't whilst the, increasing uh, petrol taxes by 12 cents a litre as well. Isn't the pipe dream pretty similar to your pipe dream? No, what we've released is a plan, a 10-year plan around uh, key projects across New Zealand, public transport and roading projects which need to be delivered. The reality is what Labor has said is we're going to somehow pick some of the same projects which we announced two weeks ago, um, but their, their plan also doesn't have a, an actual funding plan beyond 26-27 to actually deliver it. In fact, in the National Land Transport Fund, which allocates mm. money to state highway improvements, they're actually taking money from 27 onwards from that to put into their other pet projects. I'll, I'll get onto the funding issue in a moment because I understand that it is critical when it comes to these large-scale uh, transport plans. What is the major difference, aside from light rail, between Labor's vision and the government's vision for transport in New Zealand in the next 10 years and the National Party's? Well, we actually believe in delivery of roads and we believe in actually getting things done. This is a government which for six years said we've over-invested in state highways, we've over-invested in roads in New Zealand. Uh, now they've come up with a plan to uh, suddenly pick these projects out of a hat and say we're actually going to do it. We actually believe in it. We've got a track record of delivery and we've got a plan on actually how we're going to get it delivered. We've got our policies around faster consenting timeframes, new funding tools. We're actually going to get things done because that's our track record with this Waterview Tunnel, Transmission Gully, the Waikato Expressway, electrifying the rail network here in Auckland. Those are projects which New Zealanders are benefiting from every single day and they see that that was an investment put forward by the National Party. This government hasn't got that track record to put forward. Both plans do have a lot of roads. The government's plan is to put in $750 million over the next three years into walking and cycling improvements. Would you fund those projects? Well, look, I think that's a significant increase. We wouldn't increase it to that, to that level. What would you I mean, increase it to in the next well, three I, years? Well, I think it needs to be flatlined, to be honest. Uh, what they've done is they've put a 70%. The, the, the biggest increase from the government policy statement is into walking and cycling, being paid, why for, it, why being paid for by people's petrol taxes, mm which uh, they're arguing needs to be to fix the roads, well, actually taking that money from people driving their kids to school, uh, driving to work, trucks delivering food to the supermarket to pay for a 70% increase in walking and cycling when ultimately what we should be doing is actually 
being very careful with taxpayers' money and investing first and foremost in building and maintaining the transport network. Why is it a bad idea to invest in walking and cycling? Well, you look at the percentage of people who actually walk and cycle to work compared to the people, percentage of people who drive uh, and use the roads to but get to work. And you've public heard of induced demand, right? Well, it may, maybe if you create the infrastructure and actually fund and, the infrastructure, and the solution to induced demand, use and, the, and the solution to induced demand is actually using congestion charging to help manage demand. We'll get on to that. Sure. And that is in our plan is, is a commitment to introducing congestion charge to help manage that. But this government is spending, you know, they're prepared to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on cycleways, and they, they spent 50 million on a cycle bridge which they didn't even build. That ultimately uh, is the only thing they've actually delivered is 50 million for a cycle bridge. So, 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 so just to be totally clear, you would flatline the walking and cycling improvement, walking and cycling improvements over the next term. The government's also putting $105 million into improvements in interregional public transport. Would you fund those projects? Well, again, they're adding more and more activity classes to the National Land Transport mm. Fund. So no, we wouldn't, because ultimately you can get an intercity bus between here and most parts of the country for a, a very small uh, cost, and that comes in as commercially mm. operated. What this government's vision now is to try to extend public transport from being just around uh, within our urban environments mm. to tackle congestion and ensure people have choices to now actually connecting our regions where it's already commercially viable. Labor's plan is to increase fuel taxes 12 cents a litre over the three years of the next term. In your first term in government, will National increase road user charges and petrol taxes? No, we won't. Not at all in your no, first not, term in not, government? Not in our first term in government. Right. You said Labor's decision to hike petrol taxes while Kiwis continue to be slammed by inflation cannot be justified. When could it be justified? Well, what we've said is once inflation is back within the 1% to 3% band, uh, we will be rewriting this government policy statement in our first three to six months in office. At that time, inflation will not be within that band. So we're making a commitment to New Zealanders that we won't be increasing fuel excise and road user charges in our first term. We have a range of other funding tools that we will be implementing. They're all based on user pays so that people who benefit from those projects are contributing towards them, but we are not going to be increasing excise during a cost of living crisis. But you will consider increasing excise once inflation returns to 1% to 3%? Yes, absolutely. Because but, So but, when but, is that expected at the moment? Well, that is expected towards the second half of last year. Okay, but what uh, we're, next but, year, right? No, no, point, just hang on a second. Yes. So, so, that's, so inflation, the Reserve Bank and Treasury expect inflation will go to between 1% and 3% the second half of next year, third quarter of next yes. year. When is the Labor government planning to increase the excise taxes? No, but the point I'm no, making... No, 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 no. When, when is Labor planning to Well, they're to planning to put them from July next year, 1st right. of July. So what, see, what what quarter is that next year? That is the, the beginning of the third quarter. Right, which but is the, the point, same, same time that the Reserve Bank and Treasury are expecting... Well, but, but the point I'm trying to make, though, is we're making a commitment to New Zealanders that we won't be increasing fuel excise and petrol taxes in our first term. And so... But we, you will consider increasing them once inflation well, returns to when, 1% to 3%. When, when, when we write the following government policy statement on transport, which won't be uh, until our second term in government. And so our point here we're making is we're giving a very clear uh, commitment that we will not be increasing fuel excise and petrol taxes in our first term. What we are going to do, though, is we are going to uh, work in our first term around a, a whole revenue uh, change to how we uh, fund transport. Yeah, so, so $9.5 billion. So $9,500 million in private financing you're going to use. That's according to page 32 of your transport plan. What does that mean specifically? Well, what that means is a range of projects that we've highlighted which will unlock significant greenfield development growth outside our urban environments. And those can be funded through a variety of new tools. And mm. so what we're saying is we're open to using private capital, whether it's New Zealand Superfund, KiwiSaver, ACC, 
uh, overseas pension But, but how does plans, it work from, from an investor's are, perspective, are able like to those then, private funds? How, how do they get a return? Well, like many other countries help uh, build toll roads, for mm. example, they, they put the capital up front. They then collect revenue back. So we're talking about more toll roads for New Zealanders. We're open to new toll roads for New Zealanders. Right. And what we're saying is they, they take the risk up front by investing in mm. that project. The, the, that project is then funded over time, right. whether it's tolls, uh, value capture charges on the land, which is unlocked from whether it's housing or commercial development. Value capture development. Is, is a flash term for tax, essentially, isn't it? Well, it's, it's where there is a, a project which unlocks greenfield or mm. commercial development and those landowners who ultimately significantly benefit from that infrastructure being built yeah. contribute it, towards it's it. It's a tax. So, so you've got value capture, which is a tax. You've got cost recovery, which is essentially a toll. So it's not like the taxpayer is not going to be paying for this ultimately. But, but the point about these charges is about ensuring those who benefit from them most directly mm. are contributing towards that project. The, 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 the way fuel excise means that mm. whilst the majority of the projects in our plan and a Labor's plan are in the upper North Island, mm. people in Invercargill are going to be paying for them. So this allows for that cost to be much closely connected with the actual end user of that, of that particular piece of infrastructure. We think that's a yeah. fair approach. And in fact, we actually also <laughs> think the revenue system for how we charge for road use needs to change. And we need to move all vehicles away from excise towards a road user charge, which allows us to charge based on the kilometres of travel rather than the number of litres of fuel being used. When will you do that? Well, that's a piece of work we're going to start uh, immediately on coming into government. The timing that it takes to actually do that, uh, we don't have all the information, but that will take probably a few years to actually get underway and get done. Technology and how that will be implemented, there are a range of questions. But essentially but, I mean, you're talking about a road user charge that applies to all motorists, not just you know, not heavy just vehicle diesel drivers, vehicles. not just diesel exactly. vehicles. Exactly, and we think that's a much fairer approach to right. charging for road use because it's based on the number of mm. kilometres you travel rather than the number of litres of fuel that you use. Right. And so that is ultimately where we think we need to hit, okay. and that's a piece of work that we're going to get started. Inflation's been bad, eh? Inflation is is. The National Transport for Future Policy considers roads around the country. As a party that prides itself on fiscal prudence and economic management, how did you account for inflation in your costings? Well, what we did is we took the upper estimate of the projects that we, uh, we've decided we're going to support. Mm. Um, and so those take into account cost escalations and have contingencies inbuilt into them. And, and so how, how did and, you account, so to my question... And then we set aside a 10% contingency right. uh, over, on top the, over on top of those projects. How did you account for inflation in the costing? So we took the upper estimates of those projects. No, but I'm asking about inflation. Which is the P95 cost estimates, which take into account future cost increases I, for I those projects. I understand, but and you've, then, got, you've got and, years and, for these costings. No, no, and, please answer my specific question. How did you account for inflation? We accounted for inflation by putting, setting aside a 10% contingency across our, the, 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 the transport plan to, say, to allow for that uh, cost and pressure on those projects. But would not a more credible approach for costings, especially heading into an election campaign, to have been to say, these are the costings, this is what it was in 2017, we're going to take the P95 from 2017, we are going to apply inflation well, we could have to, take... that, to that costing so that taxpayers actually get a realistic idea so, of what this could potentially cost. So in many cases, the P95 is above what the P50 would be mm. if it was inflation adjusted. Let's talk about uh, congestion charging. You say in your Transport for the Future plan, National will introduce congestion charging as a new tool to help reduce travel times in our congested cities. What cities and how much? Well, look, ultimately that's something that you have to discuss with local government. The cities which have expressed interest are Auckland, uh, Wellington and Tauranga have all expressed interest mm. in a congestion charge being implemented. What we're saying is we're going to allow for that uh, process to start to legislate for it.
uh, and then to work with them around what those what that funding is then used for. What, what would it look like in practical terms if I was driving into the centre of one of those cities? Well, ultimately, that's a decision that would need to be made as part of that consultative process. And what do you see it as being? Just roughly, I get, I get that this I don't, isn't going to be an exact I figure. I don't have a figure. Ultimately, that is a figure that would need to be determined through that process. People who understand uh, you know, these issues need to be able to look at it and work out what costs would be mm. required to get the shift that's needed. Um, but ultimately, that is something that would need to go through a rigorous process to determine right. what that cost might be. I mean, you're going you're to remove the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax on day one, right? Immediately, effectively. So how long would it take to introduce congestion charging? Well, we'd be process? legislating for it pretty rapidly. Um, the government has already drafted legislation, which we will make some amendments to. Uh, but ultimately, then it needs to go through a process in terms of uh, the council would need to consult yeah. uh, the, the routes, the costs, all of those things. Um, but I put it to you, um, Auckland Council's sitting on over $300 million of unspent Auckland regional fuel tax, uh, so they've got plenty of funds to continue with those projects that they've got in place already. After the break, Simeon Brown explains why he thinks spending billions on roads could actually be good for reducing emissions. Hawkeye, welcome back to Q&A. The National Party has committed to New Zealand's 2050 net zero targets. And in the second part of our interview, I asked Simeon Brown about climate change. Roughly what percentage of emissions come from transport? In New Zealand, I think it's about 40% of emissions. Uh, depending. I think that's for energy, yes. largely. So, so if, so you, look at, if you look at transport, yeah, it's about 18%. 18, like it's half, half that. So yeah, 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 about 18%. Um, so, so what modelling did you do on the emissions impact of your transport plan? So we looked at it, we actually asked the government whether there was modelling having been done on of those projects. Mm. Uh, most of the projects there hasn't been modelling done, something we will do in government. Mm. Um, but the point I'd make there is we actually need to make sure traffic is moving because when traffic is idling, it's belching out far more emissions than when it's actually moving efficiently and quickly around our cities and regions. So, so you haven't, to be totally clear, you haven't done any emissions modelling on your transport plan? No, we haven't, but we're, we, there's work that we will do in government. But also... Shouldn't, we, shouldn't you have done that? Well, the reality is we don't have an army of officials. You do have uh, a war chest, though. We don't you've, have, got, you've, got, you've got millions of dollars. I've we, been watching your donations. You've we got plenty we of money. Don't, we don't have an army of officials, but what we, do, what we are committed to doing is doing that work in government. But at the same time... Uh, these are roads and these are projects that New Zealand needs to make our country more efficient, productive, to grow our economy, mm. move people quickly and safely where they need to go. And, um, and ultimately, as I said, when, when traffic's moving, it's far more uh, efficient from a carbon perspective than when it's mm. idling in traffic. Ultimately, over time, also, the, the type of cars that people drive, hydrogen trucks, mm. uh, they're all going to need roads to drive on. Uh, we're going to need safe quick, efficient connections between our major urban centres. So that's why we're committing to this pipeline of projects. Some people will look at that and say you've put the cart before the horse. That, that, you know, you, you've costed this, for example, but you haven't bothered doing any modelling around the emissions for, for something that well, is I mean, one of the biggest contributors to well, New Zealand's no, emissions but, but ultimately, there's a difference between the, the, the infrastructure and the, uh, what drives on it. And so we still need the infrastructure to make sure we've got resilient connections, safe and efficient connections around our country. Uh, what drives on it will change. That is changing already, and it yeah. will continue to change over time. Uh, but ultimately, we're still going to need roads for public for buses to drive on as well. So under the Emissions Reduction Plan, as it stands, transport emissions need to be reduced by 41% by the year 2035. Will you keep that target? We're committed to those targets. 
you committed to that target under under well, the emissions we're reduction plan. We're committed to the targets that we've set. The 2050 net zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and no, um, so this is the emissions reduction plan, which is the pathway to net zero. So from the under the emissions reduction plan, transport emissions need to be reduced by 41% by 2035. Will you keep we're that committed target? To the, we're committed to the targets. How we get there will, may well be different from how the government is going to achieve these targets. So you and just, we've been very clear about that. Okay, be totally clear about that then. So you are not committed to that emissions reduction target, that we're, specific we're, we're target? We're committed to the emissions targets the government has set, but what we're saying is how we achieve them will be different than what the government is, is putting forward. And you look at the government's <coughs> track record around... The uh, government can answer for themselves. Don't worry, we'll, 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 we'll have them on and we'll ask them questions too. But, but this is really important. Given transport makes up roughly 20% of New Zealand's emissions profile. So if we were to reduce it by 41% by 2035, zero emissions vehicles would have to be 30% of the light vehicle th fleet by the year 20, And we're confident that will happen. I mean, ultimately what we've said is... But that's a target. So will you keep that target? Ultimately, that we're confident that will be achieved because the type of vehicles that are coming to New Zealand, the type of vehicles that are being manufactured, mm. it'll be very soon that the only type of vehicles you'll be able to purchase will mm. be zero uh, emission vehicles. So the reality is this is happening. Uh, we will keep the clean car standard. We're committed to doing that mm. to ensure that uh, vehicle importers who are bringing cars into New Zealand must bring in a cleaner mix of vehicles mm. over time. We think that's a really important tool to help us ensure but not that the clean car discount. No, we, and we don't see that as a tool which, which is. Actually, you think it's been successful? No, no, we don't. What it's mm. been successful at is taxing people who don't have a choice and subsidise those who already do. Uh, and ultimately, what we do, mm. what we do think is important though is having an overarching fuel economy standard, clean car standard, yeah. which means over time, the type and mix of vehicles that comes into the country is becoming cleaner and cleaner. Have you read the emissions reduction plan? Yes. Okay, so it says in order to achieve the savings required in the transport sector, which will then drive us towards those ultimate goals around net zero 2050, we have to reduce the total kilometres travelled by, uh, by the light fleet by 20% by 2035. So how are you going to achieve that? Well, again, this is based on the assumption that, you know, we don't have uh, congestion charging. It's based on the assumption that uh, we don't have cleaner vehicles. This is a government which thinks, and if you look at the GPS which was released on Tuesday, they've actually dropped that target as well. Uh, so that target's not actually the current one. The government has changed it. This is, but the, this is but from the emissions reduction plan. Ultimately, as I said, congestion charging is a tool which will help drive change of behaviour. Right. Uh, we are committing significant investment into public transport in Auckland and Wellington, and we're committed to investigating rapid transit in Christchurch as well. So our plan does have a significant investment into public transport to help us reach and to have uh, give people more choices mm. about how they move around, which I think will make a big difference in terms of reaching those targets. So how else will you help to improve the uptake of EVs if you're scrapping the clean car discount? Well, our view is ultimately over time, the, the type and mix of cars coming to the country will become cleaner and the choices that people make will change dramatically. What we need to have is a setting. What, yeah, what, what's going to incentivise that in the short term? Because we've got these, well, these big the, targets by 2035. Well, these are the type of vehicles that very soon, these are the only type of vehicles you'll be able to purchase. And so you think about fleets who bring Only type cars. of new vehicles, perhaps. Yes, and that will flow... New Zealand's got that, a pretty big second-hand vehicle And that market. will flow through very quickly. But, I mean, what we need to have is a policy which ensures that the type of vehicles coming in at the front end mm. um, can then uh, be cleaner, and then you've got to make sure you've got the churn in the market so they're then churning through to right. the second-hand market. So uh, heading into 2020, as I recall, you considered settings around fringe benefit tax, for example... Is that something you're considering for EVs at the moment? We haven't. We've got an EV policy coming out shortly, uh, which we haven't announced yet. The but other thing, the, the other the thing, the focus in that will be around investing in the EV charging network, right? Which we think is the area which 
Um, we are actually, if you look at the stats, mm. the worst in the OECD mm. around the number of public charges to uh, EVs on the road. That's the bit that we need to move a lot faster on. I know the government's doing some work. Mm. They're, they're writing a strategy, spending a lot of money on a report. Uh, we actually need to, we need to do whatever we can to supercharge the EV charging network in New Zealand. I also recall you, you allowed EV drivers, or your policy was to allow EV drivers to use bus lanes. Is that something you're concerned That's not our policy at the moment. Should EV drivers pay road user charges? Yes, it is our, it is our view that they should. From um, next year? The exemption runs out on the 31st of March. I mean, ultimately, people who use the roads should be mm. contributing towards it. It was an incentive that National put, into, put in place uh, when we were in government. I think when we put it in place, I think it was nine EVs on the road. So it made sense at that time. Uh, but we said until, uh, until EVs reach about 2% of the fleet, which is a, it, we're reaching that point now. And so we believe it's the right time to remove that exemption and for those road users. And most, most EV drivers uh, would admit that actually they should be contributing towards um, mm. the use of the roads. At the same time, we're saying actually we should be moving all vehicles to road user charges over time. Just from a philosophical perspective, do you think in order to achieve our climate change emissions reductions targets, we need to get people off the roads? No, I don't think we need to be getting people off the roads. I think we need to put the right incentives in place. The emissions trading scheme um, prices carbon, so that's really important. It's already it's priced and it's capped. That will have an incentive over time as it mm. flows through into the price of petrol. Uh, we also have to make sure that we are pricing congestion, uh, which ensures that we are pricing people's choices that they make. Mm. Uh, we think those are the right incentives which actually help drive the right type of behaviour. But to stand here and say, you know, Jack, I think you should drive a car or I don't think you should drive a car, mm. um, people have compl complex lives. People have children to take to school and mm. grocery to pick up and all sorts of other things they've got to do in their lives, get their kids to sport, whatever it may be. I'm not here going to judge someone on the choices they mm. make in terms of how they travel around our cities and our regions. I want to ask you a couple of questions in your role as National's public service spokesperson. You talked about reducing spending on consultants in the public service, but what cuts, if any, will National make to full-time public service staff? Well, we've got a policy we're going to release shortly around the public service and how we want to find efficiencies in, in the back office in the core public service mm. and drive uh, more resource into the front line, teachers, doctors, nurses, uh, police. That's, that's, our that's our intention. We've got a policy that we'll be releasing shortly around how we're going to achieve that. But the reality is we do have a bloated bureaucracy down in Wellington. It has grown far too quickly. Yeah. Uh, and the outcomes are going backwards across every do, metro. Do these people exist? I mean, I mean, the, the, this whole, like, back office into the front office well, they, argument. I mean, like, so you applied in a hospital or something, right? I mean, of course, we would love as many doctors and nurses as possible, but... It's not simply a case of snapping your fingers and replacing Peter with Well, when you've got 1,000 extra staff at NZTA but they haven't built one single major new road in the last six years, you've got to ask mm. the question, where's the investment going? Three times as many communications officers at NZTA. Mm. There is significant growth in these back office functions and what we're saying is we need to have a focus on driving our savings from the back office into the front line so we can actually get the focus on delivery and outcomes for New Zealanders, whether that's faster, hip operations, uh, you know, making sure right. that our kids are going to school and learning to read, write and maths. Those are the type of outcomes that I think New Zealanders are looking for from their government. That's where our focus is Will you is have be. explicit targets for cuts? We've got a public service policy that we're going to be right. releasing shortly around how we're going to find efficiency. OK, then just ask me this and then, I'll, and then I'll leave it. Which specific ministries do you think are the most bloated? Look, I think there's significant, been significant growth at MB, Ministry for the Environment, 
Um, I think even look at NZTA, which has got a thousand extra staff, and you look at their delivery, which has been, I think, quite a, quite poor. There's significant change that's required, uh, but our focus will be on making sure that the mm. outcomes that New Zealanders expect are the first and foremost priority for all of those departments and organisations. It is Nationals' Simeon Brown. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Up next, Sir Roger Douglas might be out of politics, but meet Rob Douglas, Sir Roger's nephew. He's hoping to follow in his uncle's parliamentary footsteps. Kia ora we welcome back to Q&A. The Tukituki electorate is still very much in recovery mode following the destruction of Cyclone Gabrielle. Over the last 30 years, Tukituki has swung between National and Labour. After a long lean to the centre-right, Labour won the seat in 2020. ACT and the Greens are pushing for the party vote in the seat, and the contest is shaping up between two candidates with a whole lot of history. Morning rush hour have locked north and that's candidate Catherine Wedd letting commuters know she intends taking Tukituki back for national. <laughs> Over in Hastings, Labour's Anna Lork, the incumbent Tukituki MP, is starting the day with these constituents who call themselves Polyactive, a Flaxmere community group focused on well-being. Anna Lork is a former journalist, businesswoman, district health board member and mum of five. This will be her fourth time contesting the Tukituki seat, which she won off national in 2020 with a margin of 1,050 votes. Along with Hastings and Havelock North, the electorate stretches out to Waimarama and Cape Kidnappers and down to just north of Waipawa. Is this your campaign office? Oh, it is yeah. too. <laughs> yes, you've kind of got to have everything in a provincial electorate. We've got the gumboots, we've got the different pairs of shoes, we've got the wardrobe in here, high heel, that's just if you want to look a little bit nicer, kind of walking around different kind of areas. And then we've got yeah. the sneakers, which basically you pound the pavement with at the moment on the campaign trail on the doors. Okay, so you're good <laughs> so to go. Yeah, so I'm good to go, yeah. yeah, definitely. Good to go to the back house. <laughs> But before we do, here's where Catherine Wedd, age 17, began her political quest, Youth Parliament. Why should the taxpayers have to support these politicians that we simply do not need? After a law degree, journalism. Catherine Loft is with us again from Northwood. Catherine. Yes, well, it's been all go here at the command centre this morning. I just thought I'd bring you along here today to one of our family-owned uh, businesses. Now we're 2023 in one of the very few pack houses around Hastings operating after the devastating February cyclone. Growers have found it really, really tough for the past six years under this government. There's been so much compliance, regulation, cost, and then we've been compounded by a cyclone where we've seen 50% impact to the But orchards. the government are offering them a loan, is that right? Yeah, so it was very, very slow from the outset, so there were no decisions very quickly and the funding didn't come quickly. The national candidate's last job was in the apple industry. So you've done a lot of things, Catherine. You've been a TV reporter, so of course that sets you up for the top job. Oh, absolutely. Top job, absolutely. No, yeah. uh, I've worked, worked in the horticultural industry. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. No, and I feel that 
I do have a lot to offer because I have got a legal background, media background, marketing background, and I now want to take all of that practical commercial experience and advocate for our community here and the people of Tukituki. Not so long ago, the Labour and national candidates for Tukituki worked together in Havelock North. You were business partners, right, in the PR company? Yeah, I, I built the business. You worked for Anna Law, is that right? I worked uh, in marketing with Anna, yes. I haven't seen her um, much since then. Is that difficult though, now that you're uh, sort of opponents? No, not at all. I think we're both just obviously going for the same job and that happens all the time throughout New Zealand. The best focus I can do is focus on the job I'm working on now and that's what I do every day. Not your opponent? Absolutely not. Anna Locke's parliamentary career began with plenty of fizz. What did I say? Barack is in the morning. But it's in her electorate where she has a reputation as a high-energy MP. You say go! <laughs> I'm a workhorse politician, so that means I have to get out and I work with people on the ground. Do you think you can still hold on to it, even though some people would describe this electorate or your victory in 2020 as part of the red wave, Jacinda effect? Uh, the way I hold on to this electorate is from the work I've been doing. And I only deserve to be here if people do see me as a hard-working local MP. The constant rumble of trucks along Hastings' back roads is in fact music to the ears of local residents overwhelmed with silt from Cyclone Gabriel. Well done, keep up the hard work. The trucks are hauling the unwanted silt from around the region and dumping it on a family orchard to become a stop bank. The orchardist came up with the win-win idea, but his daughter says the local MP made it happen. So he came up with that idea, yeah. and then what happened? How did he get it out there? Um, Anna. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we tried. We got no traction. And um, then I contacted Anna, and she came down, and she could see it. And um, she went from there for us. Man, it's blowing fast. Our place was just absolutely annihilated. Six months on, the frames are up on the houses that accommodate the RSC workers to replace the homes destroyed by the cyclone. They had to swim to our, our property across the road. Um, swam out of here? Yes. Across the road? Yes. Every day we're making progress and I think all of us would like it to happen faster. But it's been difficult with three different ministers looking after the recovery. And my job has been on the ground. My job hasn't been my, The challenges in my job have been actually helping people and making sure I'm there for them as much as I can. Just um, out doing a little bit of campaigning today. Right. Uh, how's, yeah. how's it all going for you? Oh, not bad. Good. No good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need yeah. a change of the government yes. though to get this economy stimulated. Yes. Over in Havelock North, Catherine Wedd is meeting with small business owners and talking tough on crime. Gangs is a really, really big one here in Tukituki. We've seen a 71% increase in gang membership alone here in Hawke's Bay. So what can you do and so about we, the, the gang so, issue so, so, so our party's going to uh, introduce policy that will crack down on the gangs. We've got uh, Wynn Drabble here. Um, Wynn's a teacher. Hello, Hi, Wynn, good to see you again. I'm back at work. A few streets away, Anna Lork is introducing us to a popular local teacher, happily singing the MP's praises for helping him navigate surgery waiting lists. And you came to the initial assessment with me. 
Yes, because I think we talked about, that's the most important thing for me about being a local MP, yeah. is that uh, when I'm asked for help, that I, that I keep on the journey with asked. you. You did ask. Act. Who's that? Are you, you're not Rob? I'm Rob, yes, oh, Rob Douglas, hi. Hi. And Rob's not on any of the hoardings he's putting up because... We're campaigning for the party vote in this area. Rob Douglas's uncle, there's the clue, co-founded the ACT Party 30 years ago. So Rob, are you tired of people asking you about your uncle? Oh look, I'm very proud of Roger, uh, Roger Douglas. He, um, you know, did an awful lot of good for New Zealand. Didn't he say a few weeks ago he wouldn't vote for ACT? Well, I think what he said was that he was a... He was a swing voter, but I'm pretty confident that he will vote for ACT. ACT candidate Rob Douglas may be pushing the party vote, but at 16 on the list, there's a chance he may be joining in Parliament whoever the people of Tukituki choose to represent them. Who's going to be there for them? Anna Lorcas, your local MP for Tukituki. I really want to stand up for the people of Tukituki and be their local MP. Win for Tukituki! Fena Owen reporting there in Tukituki. After the break, will it be third election lucky for the Opportunities Party? This year, the leader's pursuing a new strategy, but will it be enough to get top in Parliament? Tēnā koutou, welcome back. Tomorrow marks six weeks until early voting opens for the October election. For the Opportunities Party, it is the ultimate test of a new election strategy. After falling short of the 5% party vote threshold in the last two elections, party leader Raf Manji is hoping to win the island seat and break into Parliament. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. Why is this election different? I think we're sort of at the end of a 35-year cycle where we are facing enormous challenges around climate change, around inequality, a lack of sense of direction for the country. And we have some clear choices ahead of us. Do we go backwards or do we go forwards? And we're focused on forwards. That's why a lot of our policies are future focused and forward looking. And I think it's really important that people get behind that movement and start to think about the future they would like to see. Why is your strategy in this election different to the previous two? I think getting 5% for a new party hasn't been done before. It's really difficult. It takes a huge amount of resource. And for me, you know, Christchurch is my story. It's why I'm in politics, post-earthquakes, the 15th of March attacks, and Ilam is home for me, and this will be my fourth campaign in 10 years. I've been elected there before, and I think I can win the seat. In the spirit of democracy then, let's talk about some policy issues yeah. you're bringing forward. Today you are announcing a teal visa. Give That's us the right. details. Well, essentially we have um, a lot of interest from people overseas to come and live in New Zealand. We have a bunch of uh, visa proposals around what we call active investors, where people can basically pay to come here and get residency as a pathway to citizenship. But a lot of that stuff is directed by the government. Like The government will tell you where to invest. It doesn't really add value to the country. At the same time, we are facing enormous pressures around climate change, climate impacts, particularly in the Pacific, our cousins where they live. The issue around climate settlement is going to become much more important and climate impacts. And we thought, well, let's try and put those two things together. So today we're announcing a visa. It's the Teal visa uh, where investors can invest $3 million per visa. It's slightly lower than the current requirement. Mm. And that money will go into a climate resettlement fund. 
And that fund essentially will focus on resettling people from climate impacted areas, investing back into those communities, mm. uh, providing scholarships and educational pathways, particularly around climate change adaptation mm. and impacts. And this is a, a world first, it's not been done before. And I think it's something that will be more of an attractive sell to people who want to move to New Zealand, that they're actually investing in something that has a positive outcome. When you say investing, yeah. to think about it from yeah. the active investor's yeah. perspective, yeah. is it an investment for which they get a return? Their return is actually investing in the future of climate impact. That's charity though, right? Uh, no. Well, no, but at the moment, <laughs> let, let's think, so the active investor at the moment, yeah. I think it's five million, the equivalent like of five, five million to in an yeah, investment, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But after a certain period of time, you get your money back. Yes. Hopefully, yeah. with, with some sort of with some sort of um, margin on top of it. Yeah. Under your proposal, yeah. you give three million dollars. Yeah. You don't get that three million dollars no. back. No, it's it is it's an investment. That's charity. <laughs> it's a one -way investment. That's charity. <laughs> well, you could look at it as philanthropy. Yeah. Um, but that's why we pitched it at a slightly lower amount. Mm. So it's for people actually who do have an interest in that. Uh, they want a cleaner path to residency, and it's something that they want to invest in. It's something that they're interested in. Mm. And I think the, you know, the idea of you know, having a cleaner approach means they mm. don't have to kind of have government deciding where to put money. And if we look at the numbers, I think we had over 430 people interested a couple of years ago mm. in these visas. Recently, I think there's been 30 applications. Yeah, I which, think it's 15, yeah, 15 in 2023. Yeah, because actually it's too difficult. So what we want is we want these people to come here and have a, an easy pathway and mm. feel good about it. Then once they're here, they can start making investments that they choose. But but it's 15 applicants at the moment for yep. 2023 yep. under a system through which they get their money back yep. with a margin yep. on top. Yep. You think it's going to be more when they give $3 million but they don't get their money back? Yeah, because this is the attractive nature of the proposition, that it is a philanthropic investment and for people who are invested in climate. So a lot of people will be mm. coming here because they're worried about climate impacts in their own countries and they're mm. thinking actually New Zealand looks like the best place to be. So it's connecting those two things up and that's why we're limiting it to 800 visas in year one. So it is an experimental visa but we mm. think it's quite important. Okay, talk to us about your tax policy. Yes, the tax switch. Mm. So what I love is that we proposed the tax switch uh, last October which was essentially shifting the burden of tax from income onto land. So essentially our biggest problem is the cost of housing. People were probably 10, 15 years ago maybe paying 30, 35% of their disposable income towards housing costs. It got up as high as 55%. It's still very high. It's the biggest problem mm. we have in New Zealand. We want people to be able to afford a home. And people are struggling. We have over 30,000 people still on the emergency housing wait list. That's after six years um, of this government, you know, investing in new public housing. It's a real problem. It's too expensive. And our kids are going overseas and we don't want that to be happening. So we're actually saying, let's get to grips with this problem. And governments have refused to take it seriously. And we think actually it's going to drive a change and rebalance the cost of incomes versus housing. How does it work? So essentially we apply a small annual tax on the urban residential land. So it's on your land value, not your house value. A small, a small tax yes, a being small subjective. <laughs> what well, is a three, small tax? three quarters of a percent. Right. Three quarters of a percent. And that money goes towards income tax cuts. Mm. So we're basically trying to put more incomes in people's pockets. And yes, people are paying. So this actually is instead of a capital gains mm. tax. So this is, this is actually just trying to make a very, very simple shift between our real problems around mm. land values. Land values have continued to go up. I mean, if we think about over the last 20 years, house prices are up 450%. 
wages are up about 55 percent. Right. You know, th that's the problem that we need to solve because this can't continue forever. Otherwise, no one's going to be able to afford so, to live in a home. So if you are living in a home that yep. has a land value of $2 million, yes. you pay $15,000 a year correct. in tax. Yes. Yes, and then you will have obviously income tax cuts on the other side, depending on what your incomes are. Well, provided you have an income, right? So, yes. so, so what happens if you're a retired couple and you're living in a house that you've been in for 40 years yeah. and the land is worth $2 million? Yeah, you can defer it until you sell that home. And how does that work? Well, that will just roll up. A bit like you can do with rates. Yeah, so, so, at, so at the gets, moment... Who yes. gets to defer? If you're a pensioner right, and you're sitting in a home that has mm. a high land value but you don't want to move, mm. well, you don't have to pay until you sell that property. So it's, just, it's the same with council rates. So we had the same issue in Christchurch. Uh, a lot of pensioners were complaining that rates were too high. Mm. We said you can defer it until you paid off um, or moved, moved home. How's this policy going down in Fendleton? Um, mixed, <laughs> to be fair. But you have to remember... Well, what actually, are the criticisms, have to the, are the criticisms the, the, yeah. that people have in Fendleton? Yeah. They just don't like paying more tax. <laughs> so it's more I mean, tax for, yeah, for some I mean, yeah. people. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. But mm. actually, if you look at the median house price in Ireland, it's mm. around $700,000. So mm. actually, most people will be better off. Renters will be better off because they're not paying it. So I think it's just... Look, people struggle with the idea that they have to pay a bit more tax. But then when you say to them, how are your kids going to afford a house? They go, oh, well, I, we might buy it for them. And mm. We need to get away from that. So I think a lot of... One thing I would say about tax policy is I don't think tax policy should be an election issue. It's something that we should be having cross-party conversations about in between elections, and everyone should get around the table and say, how are we going to solve this problem? Instead, we have Labour constantly ruling out a capital gains tax, which actually would be a pretty straightforward thing to do. Uh, National are supporting land value capture, which they don't talk about a lot, but actually they do support land value taxation, to pay for infrastructure. It's used around the world, it's quite normal. Uh, Greens and Tapati Mari have gone with you know, wealth taxes, which are never going to happen. And that's not very helpful for the general mm. public in terms of making a selection. So we actually need to make some kind of commitment that actually we are going to deal with the housing mm. issue and we all need to get around the table and do it together. One last policy pitch. Mm. Tell us about the Teal card. Oh, well, this is my favourite one because this is about investing in our future generations. And it is so clear to me that there are too many of our kids are not entering adulthood with the skills that they need. So we want to support them, take a preventative approach, invest in them through fully funded healthcare, through fully funded public transport, subsidies for e-bikes, e-scooters, mobility mm. to get them around, and a national civic service model, which I've had huge feedback on, you know, not just from young people, but from mm. older people who actually remember a time actually where people did do some kind of service. And I think the service aspect when we think about long-term social cohesion, this is what we learned with the Student Volunteer Army. I mean, this idea has come out of the mm. Student Volunteer Army, of the post-Christchurch response. And if you think what we've been through in Christchurch over the last 10 years, the earthquakes, the floods, the fires, mm. the 15th of March, and every time we saw huge community outpouring. Now, preparing our kids with things like civic literacy, financial literacy, first aid, driving lessons, a sense of purpose that takes them into adulthood mm. is absolutely critical. Now, th this, the Teal card as a vehicle, as a platform for investing in our future generations, mm. I think absolutely is critical. Just to be totally clear, yeah. it's like a gold card... For young people. For, for young people. Yeah. So, so who gets it and what does the civic service Yeah, so like? essentially it's the cut-off age at the moment is 30. Mm -hmm. So essentially we're saying to ourselves, we're investing in younger people, hopefully by 30, people are in a position mm. where they don't need that support anymore then from 65 and onwards we have the gold card. Mm. 
And when I'm talking to people about it, like I mean, I was doing a talk at University of Canterbury recently, half of the audience were the grandparents. Mm. They all had gold cards mm. and half of them were students. And that intergenerational conversation is the one that we need to have. And yet everyone in the middle, they're working hard, they've got kids, they've got parents, they're too stressed to think about it. Is the civic service compulsory? It's not compulsory, no. But if you want to collect the financial mm. aspect of this, which is a $5,000, you can think of it as a, a mini universal basic income for all people. The way we're going to structure it is probably, particularly if you're taking a child from birth, is opening a bank account, mm. KiwiSaver account, $250 a year going into that account. That helps us with the financial literacy process mm. as children grow up. And we have organizations already, Christchurch organization banker, already doing financial mm. literacy in schools. So that's absolutely critical. So we want, we want this to be experiential. So we want, so the way we design the course is completely open, right. but we want every kid to have gone through it. Yeah. Now in France, they're bringing in compulsory national civic service for a year, which obviously is mm. <laughs> quite a long time. We're saying do a five day course. It could be residential, it could be non-residential, but I think that that sense of social cohesion and connection with your right. fellow citizens is quite important. October 15th, yeah. if you're in a position uh, where the Opportunities yes. Party holds the balance of yes. power, how would you conduct negotiations? Yeah, that's a good parties? question. So our position has been quite clear. We will go on the cross benches. We will not, regardless of what happens, be in, in government in terms and of... And that differs from in the past, from your yes. position in the past. Yes, yeah. And I think it's important because I think we're an independent party. We want to mm. bring some new ideas, be a policy incubator, be able to work collaboratively across Parliament. So we will sit on the cross benches. Mm. We will abstain on a confidence vote. So essentially, if you have a, a grouping who has 59 or 60 seats, mm. uh, we will say, fine, you go ahead, call up the Governor General and say mm. you can form a government. Then after that, in terms of how we engage around confidence and supply and budget issues, yeah. that's something we will work out. And that's really a conversation for the new government right. to say to us, either we're happy you being where you yeah. are, or we'd like to tie a few things up, and what would you want for that to happen? You've published your party list, 13 candidates running yeah. in electorates around the country. Yeah. You dropped your co-deputies. Yes. Why did you do that? Well, that was, that was essentially a squad leader approach. So I needed somebody in Wellington, somebody in Auckland to look after the team. And then after sort of four or five months, where well, we had a lot of new candidates, mm. it was actually, okay, who do I want in Parliament? And what kind of structure do I want? And and I so realized, why not those previous Well, because I realised I needed a single deputy leader and I wanted them based in Wellington Central. And Natalia Albert, who was our deputy leader mm. and candidate there. And, and a lot of this also is like, where are we going to get the, where are we going to get the media focus? <coughs> so Wellington Central will have a new MP. It is the most politically active electorate in the country. So she is out there doing stuff mm. every day. And that's raising awareness. We have Dr. Nina Sue in Epsom, mm. who is an emergency doctor. She's doing a fantastic job. We have Ben Peters, Dr. Ben Peters. You've got, got 13 yeah. candidates around yes. the country. Yeah. Um, no Māori or Pacifica. No. But by my count, you have more PhDs than you have Māori <laughs> or, or Pacifica yeah. in, in your candidates. Yes. Why is that? We, we ran a candidate, open candidate selection programme. So why, why don't Māori or Pacifica want to stand for top? I think, look, I, I tried to recruit some quite senior Pacifica people. Mm. They chose to go w with other parties. And what I can parties did they go I with? I can't say that. Um, we did have conversations with uh, potential Māori candidates. But I think for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's the risk. It's a huge deal to step forward and put your name forward for this. Mm. And yeah, we just this time didn't happen to, to come up with, um, with a Māori or Pacifica candidate. But hopefully next time. Have you polled Ilam? There is some polling, which I should hopefully be getting in the next week or so. Yeah. 
Uh, look, we're, we're pretty positive. We think it's going really well. We think we're going to win Ireland. Do you think the other parties have polled, have polled Ireland? I have heard that there has been some polling, but it hasn't been released, so draw your conclusions from that. What? But essentially, I'm up against two backbenchers. You know, this is my fourth campaign. that I've represented the city before. I understand local and central government, mm. and I think I'm, I'm the best choice. All right. We look forward to you passing on your polling <laughs> as soon as you get those numbers. Thank you very Thanks, much Jeff. for your Thanks time. for having me. Good luck for the campaign. The Opportunities Party leader, Raf Manji. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Kia ora we welcome back to Q&A. A fortnight ago, we brought you the story of two Chinese workers who alleged they'd been exploited and abandoned after coming to work in New Zealand on the accredited employer work visa. Following our, uh, our reporting, MB opened an investigation into the men's employer, but immigration experts told us it was just the thin end of the wedge and that migrant exploitation under the accredited employer work visa is rife. This week, there was a development. Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, they came to New Zealand to make a better life, but now they're trapped. I believed it was a good opportunity, but I do not think so now. When we met Xiao Yao and Fu Hai, the pair were freezing in a grim Hamilton flat, sharing a room and running out of options. Having paid an agent in China more than $16,000 for a job in New Zealand under the accredited employer work visa, the men had been working for a subcontractor on the redevelopment of the Waikeria prison until one day they were told abruptly not to return to work. We only worked for eight weeks after we arrived in New Zealand and then after eight weeks we were out of a job. The employer who'd sponsored the men's visas stopped replying to their texts and withheld pay the men say they were owed. When they cut their losses and tried to find a new employer, Xiao Yao and Fu Hai say that even though they'd had tax deducted from their pay, the IRD had no record of them. We tried to check the tax return record, nothing at all. So I believe he kept all the tax money in his own pocket. But immigration experts say the men's experience was typical of many of the almost 80,000 migrants who've been granted the accredited employer work visa since last year. There's psychological abuse, there's mental torture, um, they live in squalid housing, um, they don't enough to have enough to feed themselves, they can't support families back in their home countries. When we put the concerns to the minister responsible, he acknowledged only 2% of accredited employers have been checked. The accredited employer work visa has been in place for a year, so um, those checking systems and, and actually getting the people on board to do the checking has been ramping up. But since our interview, further reports have come to light alleging migrant abuse under the accredited employer work visa. And on Thursday, after an internal whistleblower sent him an anonymous email, Andrew Little requested an independent review. Before I received the correspondence, through um, regular reporting and engagement that I have with officials, I have received assurances that there are standard operating procedures in place and they are being complied with. The correspondence from this informant suggests otherwise. The Public Service Commission will undertake the review. Migrant exploitation is a fact and it's a reality and it has been going on for some time. And whether it's people on student visas, whether people on visitors visas, um, there are fraudulent operators 
certainly offshore, who have made promises to people, who've, who've taken their money, brokered them uh, uh, to get access to New Zealand, and the promises have been that have been made to them have been found to be wrong. The review, like I said, is, is welcome, but it will not address the root cause of exploitation. Um, so it just comes across as tinkering around the edges or, or window dressing. Almost 28,000 employers have been granted accreditation since the visa was introduced last year. Just six have had it revoked. Exploitation happens when we tie our migrant workers to employers. When we visited immigration consultant Anu Kaloti, she was working with a group of Indian migrants who claim they've been exploited after paying money to come to New Zealand under the accredited employer visa. It needs to be paused for a review. Uh, even better, it needs to be scrapped and replaced with an open work visa category. No, the programme isn't going to be suspended. I'm not, uh, I don't accept that it needs to be. For migrant workers like Fuhai and Xiao Yao, a review might represent progress, but the future is still uncertain. MB opened an investigation into the subcontractor at the centre of our reporting. That investigation is still ongoing. But there has been some good news for Fuhai and Xiao Yao. They've been registered with the IRD and their tax has been paid, which should theoretically make it easier for them to transfer their visa to a new employer. Now, a couple of final notes before we wrap up Q&A for this week. The National Party has finalised their list heading into October's election. You can see the full list at onenews.co.nz, but there are a couple of points to note. Simeon Brown, who of course we interviewed earlier in the show, has made it into the top ten. He's ranked at nine, while Michael Woodhouse dropped out of the list altogether. Woodhouse will be running in the Dunedin electorate, but the discussion yesterday suggested he doesn't expect to win it. Te Party Māori has also just released their list. Former Labour MP Mika Whaitiri is in at number three. Hauraki Waikato candidate Hana Rafati Maipi is right up there at number four. Despite only being 20 years old, we'll have that at onenews.co.nz as well. For now though, ko matu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Nā mihi kia koutou i Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.